Uh, you can have a seat. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock. You will never be moved, and you are always faithful. You'll never lose. And you didn't lose when, when you were there in the grave, sealed and stowed away. The stone was rolled away, and you rose from the dead. And so that is why we worship you today, because there's none like you. You are our rock. You're the one who rolls away the rock and makes possible new life, as Aaron shared with us so beautifully and powerfully, a new hope. And just maybe even today, Lord, there are those among us who are craving, hungering, seeking, longing for a new life. And we're in the right place. We're together the Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus is on the throne. We have your words in scripture. We're resting on the praises of the saints. And we are gathered to know you more and to know each other more. So would you take this time as well as you've done already so much this morning, would you use it to draw us in, to draw us close both to you and to each other and to the beautiful future that you have laid out for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to do a little people watching together this morning. Anybody like to people watch? Yeah, I see some nodding heads. For those of you who don't know, people watching is when you discreetly observe other people as they're just going about their daily life. And there's just an endless amount of interest and fascination with that, right? I had a friend in college who would literally post himself in the main walkway and just sit there for hours on end and watch people go by and just enjoy it. I've heard of people going on dates um, to the airport to sit and watch people go by. My wife loves to people watch and... When we go to a restaurant, I have to make sure that she's facing a wall or there'll be long stretches where I might as well not even be there. And, and it happens like this. She, she'll, she, like I'll see her eyes starting to go over my left or my right. And then with, without moving her lips at all, she'll say, don't look. <laughs> Which of course, like where the law comes in, temptation increases, right? So I'm like, What's happening behind me? And then she'll proceed to describe the person who is behind me, who invariably is one of the most interesting people in the entire, in the entire world. And I'm supposed to sit there and not turn around. So I'm like gripped onto the table, you know, like shaking until finally I can't take it anymore and I have to make an excuse, like I gotta go to the bathroom or something. And I go up and get to see the person. Now, why is it that we're fascinated with people watching? Why is it so interesting to us? And I think it's because fundamentally we are social beings. We're social beings. We orient ourselves in the world uh, and in relation to the people around us. It helps us to understand who we are and, and what we're like and maybe gives us a vision for ways that we could live that are different from the way that we're currently living. Um, gives us sort of uh, opportunity to kind of evaluate uh, what's happening uh, in our lives. 
Um, and it really starts at a young age. This process probably starts, I'm sure it actually starts with our parents. We're observing our parents. We're watching what they're doing. And we begin to take our cues from them. And it goes all the way on to this very day. Even as you came in here this morning, you were looking at the people around you. And you were, you were with it, unconsciously um, using that information to think about yourself and to think about your life and the world around you. And the Bible uses this dynamic for spiritual instruction. It helps us sometimes to see the different ways that people interact with what God is doing to help us to think about how we might interact with what God is doing. And that happens in our passage today. It happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament. But in particular, I see it happening in this passage we're going to look at today. Open up your Bible to Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can pull one out right in front of you. There uh, should be one in the seat there. And uh, encourage you, to, it's sometimes easier just to see it on the page. So that's one way to do it. We're also going to put it on the screen. And then, of course, you can pull it up on your phone. Sometimes your phone apps, you can highlight things and underline things. Um, if you need a Bible, you can take the Bible that's in the seat uh, in front of you. Just take that home with you. Uh, we don't care. We want you to have it. Um, but uh, let's look at this text together, chapter uh, 23 in the Gospel of Luke, verses 32 through 43. And as I read, I'm going to invite you to do some people watching. There's going to be different groups of people in here reacting to what is, you know, potentially and, well, I would say absolutely uh, the greatest moment in, in his, the history of the world. And observe their different responses and let that begin to cause you to reflect on your response to what's happening here. Now, um, where we are, just to locate your, you in the time here, is that Jesus is being led away to the cross. So uh, there's a very somber and heavy moment, perhaps the heaviest moment. And they have grabbed somebody to carry his cross for him because he has been beaten down in the process uh, of being arrested and flogged and many other things and uh, apparently unable to carry his cross. And so they, they get this person, uh, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him. Uh, and then uh, they're leading him away to actually put him on the cross. Verse 32, we pick up. It says, two others, in addition to Jesus, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers, and that here in this context refers to the higher up religious leaders, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, which would prolong death, uh, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, thinking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Amen. All right, five responses. When you step back and think about the impact of this moment, Jesus there on the cross, the crucifixion, and then, of course, the resurrection, which is sort of a ratification of the crucifixion to, 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 to let us know that what Christ was attempting to accomplish on that cross to atone for sin, the wages of sin is death, the resurrection lets us know that that, in fact, happened, that that was true, that it was efficacious what he did on that cross. So this is a moment unlike any other in history. Uh, there's nothing, no other moment with the same message and the same impact as the death of Jesus. Uh, all the countless lives that have been changed, all the systems in the world, all the institutions and the groups of people that have been transformed by this work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, it's, it's, you almost can't count it. Now, there are some who, of course, will uh, look askance, look down on what Christians have done in the world, and certainly Christians are an imperfect people. That's why we need Jesus, in fact. Uh, and so some will dismiss the influence of Christianity. But I want to I wanna tell you an act accurate reading of history, you cannot dismiss the influence of Jesus Christ on the history of the world in myriad wonderful and beautiful and positive ways. And I wish I, I wish I had time this morning to sort of roll through that history for us to really conceive of how impactful the death of Jesus Christ has been on us. Um, if you want to talk to me afterwards, happy to kind of work that through with you. But the question we want to grapple with right now is a more personal one. And that is, what will we do with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? What will we do with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? And that question is aided. We're helped in answering that question as we look at these five different responses. And so uh, as, we go, as I go through them, think about yourself. Um, let the people in this text cause you to reflect on your own response to Jesus where it's at today, and how maybe they could give you vision and insight for how you might respond in the future. So think about that uh, as we go through this today. Okay, the first group uh, that came up in the text are the people. The people, it says, stood by watching. In other words, they were passive, which is something we can understand on some, some level because everything that was happening around the person of Jesus Christ was unexpected and to some degree overwhelming. And it, it was hard for them to put all the pieces together to make sense of what was happening with Jesus. So we can, we can feel for them in that moment that they were, they were a little bit overwhelmed by trying to make sense of the big things that were happening in real time. Uh, and I just want to say, you may have felt this way in your life as well. Even, you might feel this way today as you think about the person of Jesus Christ and you think about the claims of Christianity, the theology, the, the belief system of Christianity. It may feel to you at times like it's a bit overwhelming. 
There's just so much there to try and sort through and make sense of. So you're in good company. Other people have felt that way in the history of the world. But one of the great things about being a human being, and sometimes we, you know, lament this, but it's really one of the precious things. It's what makes us unique and special is that we, uh, we have the ability to think. We have minds and souls that are individual to us. And you may be sitting in that feeling a measure of confusion, but uh, you're not alone in that. The first disciples were deeply confused. Uh, As you can see, all throughout the Gospels, their response to Jesus was uh, a response of confusion. But over the months and the years, they dug in, they took time to ponder and to reflect, to engage their own minds and souls and try to make sense out of what Jesus had done. And it's interesting that what you see in their lives is a radical transformation from being very fearful and reluctant to being very bold and courageous all through the the book of Acts. You see it over and over again. And and that's the kind of journey that we can go on. And I I wanna encourage you if you are somebody who is in that phase of questioning or if there are things about your Christian faith that you just feel like you haven't been able to wrap your head around and that's preventing you from leaning in more deeply, from walking with Jesus, I wanna encourage you to own and take responsibility for the fact that you have a mind and you have a soul and you have a heart and God wants you to work it out to wrestle through. And if that feels intimidating to you, then we're here. That's what the church is for, is to be a place where you can do that processing and that, that sort of grappling. We've got a wonderful opportunity that's coming up on the 20th Thursday. So not this Thursday, but the next Thursday. It's called Alpha. And Alpha is a, a place where you can go. You'll be presented with uh, sort of one facet of the Christian faith, and uh, it includes dinner, by the way, and it includes uh, spending, you know, just some good, enjoyable time together. But then you pr- you're presented with one aspect of the Christian faith, and then you have an open space to talk about it and discuss it. It's okay, whatever you think, whatever you're processing, you can, you can bring it out in that context. It's just a really healthy, wonderful place. And so we want to invite you to that. And if those of you who have friends who are in this space of questioning and feeling overwhelmed by the claims of Christianity, bring them to Alpha. Come with them and help them to experience this opportunity to process. This is a great gift that we have been given. Okay, so the people are passive. We don't want to be passive. We want to be active. The rulers are dismissive. These were the religious leaders and they dismissed what was happening on the cross with this simple statement. They said that he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. And what the rulers sadly missed Uh, even though they're theologians and they've been thinking about all these things, they sadly missed the beautiful thing that God was doing in Jesus Christ on that cross. Because what he was doing is he was loving the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus was loving the world as he was atoning for sin on that cross. And what they say, ironically, what what the rulers say is theologically accurate and true. He couldn't, he couldn't save others and save himself, right? But they missed it because they, were, they had a closed-minded conception of how God must behave. 
And we can have that too, right? Sometimes we think if God's going to do things in the world, he'll do it this way or that way. Lord, you need to be following my agenda, right? They had this conception that God would follow their agenda and he broke out of it because of his great love and did something dramatically different than they expected. But they missed it. So they dismissed it. And I want to encourage you this morning, if any part of that is reflective of you, if, if you're not understanding the beautiful thing that God is accomplishing in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection, take a second look. Don't miss that God loves you. That's what he's saying. God loves you. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how dark your past. It doesn't matter how insignificant you feel. It doesn't, uh, you know, he can deal with all of that. He's that good and that loving. All right. The soldiers, they mock Jesus and they offer him wine to prolong his death and they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And you, you gotta think about the soldiers. They sort of, they're the power people, right? So the, the, the rulers are the theologians, the thinkers. The soldiers are connected to the Roman Empire and so they have this, this strong sense of power. And so there's Jesus hanging on the cross, in their mind, you know, degraded and debased. And they don't want to associate with that. They don't want to associate with that. And that's actually, that's actually an accurate picture of part of what it takes to come to Jesus Christ in faith. You have to be okay with what to the world looks like a degraded and based, debased act on the part of God in the person of Jesus Christ to go to the cross. There was no place in the society lower than to be hanging on a cross. There were other ways to be punished that were even above being on the cross. The cross was the lowest of the low. So for the Roman, a Roman citizen wouldn't be hung on the cross. You had to not be a Roman citizen. You had to be an outcast, an outsider. And so there's Jesus on the cross. And they're like, why am I gonna have any part with that? I'm part of the power people. I'm, the, I'm a Roman soldier, right? And we can get caught up in that kind of thinking too. We can see Christianity and all of its fail, failures and flaws. We can see Christians who are, you know, are failed and flawed in so many different ways. And we can say, why do I want to be associated with that? It's too low. That's beneath me. And the text is calling you to, to think again. To think again, to to maybe be willing to receive, to accept a more humble position than you had before. And this is the crazy thing, right? Jesus, this is the way it works. Jesus goes into, onto the cross, the lowest low, he goes into the tomb, it's sealed up, and you think the story's over, and then he's exalted to the highest of the high. And that's the journey of faith. We must go into the lowly place first before being exalted. Don't miss that. The soldiers did, but we don't have to. Then we come to criminal number one. Uh, the story of criminal one, this is where to me it gets particularly painful. I mean, you just, this is a, this is a powerful, powerful moment. It says he railed at Jesus. The word means to insult, to revile, or to defame Jesus. And so they're both hanging there. All three of them are hanging there en route to their death. And he's railing on Jesus. And as the second criminal will point out, criminal number one is remarkable because even in the face of death, 
he's raising a fist to God. Rather than submit, he prefers to go down in a blaze of arrogance and selfishness. You might be tempted to look at him and say, yeah, what a terrible guy. But I want to remind us that part of our sinful nature makes us all respond to God in that way. If I had a dime for every time that I have chosen to be wrong rather than to repent, I'd be a very rich man. Right? There's something in us that wants to shake our fist at God and say, no, I know the way. I want to do it my way. There's that sense of arrogance which can overwhelm us uh, and, and keep us from God. And, and, and Jesus is inviting us this morning to be careful of the destructive path where we hang on to our own way and our own will and we're unwilling to release it to God. Even in the face of death. And all of course, this usually leads to our own destruction. Uh, we see this in human relationships over and over again. People hanging on, hanging on to their own desires while the plane is going down. Be careful, Jesus says through this text. And then there's this final response. This is criminal too. And, and I'm, I'm calling this the vital response. And by that, th- that word has to do with life. This is the life-giving response. And it's pretty simple. He gives us the gospel in a, in a, in a simple three responses here. He says, fear God, um, first of all. That's what he seems to be pointing out to this other criminal. You, you don't fear God. Uh, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, he says? I've been feeling this and saying this in many of my sermons recently that um, the reality of death is more present to me than it was previously in my life. And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, I'm getting older. Uh, and I can co- sort of see, you know, the end of my fruitful time. It's, it, it, so much of my life, I couldn't, I couldn't have capacity to actually sort of uh, understand how long that was. And now I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to see I have this many more years to really serve the Lord and produce fruit. And that has a quickening effect on the way I think about my life. And I also have parents who are aging and struggling. And so I'm watching them in their decline. And so death is becoming much more present to me than it used to be. And I think that's a healthy thing. We live in a Western culture that seems somehow to be afraid to talk about death. But the reality is that um, death is part of life. And we would do well to approach it with a measure of sobriety. With, with, with being awake to its reality. And that's one of the things that this criminal invites us to do. He says, remember that you're not gonna live forever. Today might be the day. You might leave this place and it could be surprisingly the end. And so have you considered eternity in light of the reality of death? That's what criminal two, number one, uh, firstly uh, calls us to. He says to fear God. And then he says, he says essentially to us, look, Let's recognize our guilt as well. As they hang there, he says, we're re- we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. So he understands, criminal number two understands that he and the other criminal, they've done bad things. They're just receiving the consequence of the bad things that they've done there as they hang on that cross. He has a deep awareness of what Paul will say uh, later in the book of Romans. He'll say the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And this is a truth that, again, pertains to every single one of us. That there is, uh, there is a consequence to sin. And that consequence 
is death. And we spend so much of our lives trying to run away from the simple acceptance of our own sinfulness. And we get involved in all kinds of idolatrous things to try to, uh, to, to cover over the sinfulness that is, that's in our lives. Because we don't want to face the reality that we've fallen short. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it gives you the, the power, I should say, maybe the, the context, the freedom to be able to actually look at yourself and your own sinfulness with clear eyes. Why? Because there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is release in Jesus Christ because of the atoning work that he's done on the cross. We can face our sin. And that's what the second criminal calls us to. He's calling us to recognize our guilt. Um, you know, the paradise that Jesus will uh, talk about at the end is one in which we would want there not to be any sin, right? Otherwise, it's not paradise. I mean, you could go to, I've been on vacations to wonderful places that are paradise, but then, you know, the kids get in a fight or I get in a fight, you know what I mean? Like, like you could have paradise without it being actual paradise, because for it to be true paradise, there needs to be an absence of sin. And so what's God going to do to deal with our sin? And the way that God overcomes the sin problem is through the cross, this moment that we're talking about. The Father upholds his righteousness. Paradise is still possible. And the Son offers a perfect sacrifice for sin in contrast to all those imperfect sacrifices that came before in the Old Testament. I want you to understand what's really happening here. This is God taking care of the sin problem within himself. He is at the same time holding up his sense of justice. There is right and wrong, and there is a paradise that needs to be freed from sin. And yet at the same time, there's a sin problem that humans have that they can't overcome. And so they need somebody to help them with that. And so how's that going to be solved within the same person, the God of the universe? And the answer is that God exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so at the same time, he, he upholds his justice by sending the Son to the cross. And the Son, with willing, loving submission, it's not a child, he's an adult at this point with his own will and understanding and he says I will obey and go to the cross and we have between the father and son this incredible love there has never been a deeper and more wonderful expression of the of agape love than Jesus going to the cross and so this love is flowing between the two of them and by going to the cross the father gets to uphold his justice the the son makes possible for the for there to be justification and the result of that is we get to be invited in to that perfect agape love love which is flowing between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get to be invited into that, not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. That's what paradise is. That is what paradise is. And that's what Jesus made possible. And so this man, he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Oh, I, I just, you know, this, this phrase, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is nothing more beautiful than that simple petition that criminal number two makes of Jesus. Remember me. It's, a, it's an expression of faith. He's saying, I see who you are. I see what you're doing on the cross. I see what you're inviting into me. And I believe it all and I want it. I believe it all and I want it. So would you remember me? 
Would you remember me? There, there's really no other better way to talk about a response to what God has done, done than this little phrase, Jesus, remember me. Do you want to be remembered when Jesus comes into his, his kingdom? The appropriate response is faith. Jesus, I see you for who you are. I, I see what you've done on the cross. I see the vision of the glory of a sinless paradise. And I want to be a part of that. And so I put my trust in you. That's the invitation that you have this morning. To put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There was a man, and of course Jesus' response to him is incredible. Uh, verse 43, truly I say to you, today. See, that man was going to die on that day, and we don't know what the day will be when we pass away, but on that day, and whatever day, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, whatever day is your day, he says, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. All right, we're going to finish up. There's a story in the Old Testament about King David, and he after he has a friend named Jonathan, and after he comes into power, Jonathan's dead. He says, is there anybody in Jonathan's family that I can bless? He's a wealthy, powerful king. And they say, oh, there's this guy, Mephibosheth, but he's a cripple. You don't want him around. You don't want him around. And King David says, no, bring him to my table. Like this criminal, he's a deficient person. And Jesus says to this criminal, you're gonna be at my table. He says to Mephibosheth, that's the, the cripple in the Old Testament, you're gonna be at my table. And he figures out, Jesus figures out how to get him to the table. And here we have the table. The table is a symbol of paradise. Jesus says, I'm not gonna eat again until, you, until we sup together uh, in, in the new kingdom. So he's waiting for us to get there and we're gonna have this beautiful paradise together. Jesus is waiting for us and he's carried us to this table. He's bringing us to this table. He's bringing you to this table. And if you have never come to this table before in your life, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's beckoning, he's pleading, he's calling, he's inviting, he's loving you to the table today because he's just like that. And he wants you to be a part of the perfect love within the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, would love for you to come forward. This can take a little boldness on your part. Come forward and we're gonna have some people to pray with you. Pray with somebody just to say, just to express your faith. I believe in all of it, Jesus. And you may not have it all figured out, that's okay, but I believe in what I understand. If you have your curiosity peaked, in, but you don't know if you're ready to make a decision to come to faith, I'm gonna invite you to do something very courageous. Come forward and ask somebody to pray for you that God would reveal himself to you. And if you are somebody who's needed the reminder today, if you needed this reminder today, that Jesus is remembering you in whatever you're going through right now. Come forward and ask for prayer. And of course, all are invited to the table after you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. 
It won't make sense if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior yet. So do that first, and then you come to the table.